So I guess we can go ahead and get started. I am going to say a traditional blessing beforehand for the study of Torah. Okay. So um, I'll say it in the Hebrew and then I'll say it in English. And my Hebrew pronunciation is kind of rough right now. I'm just starting to learn Hebrew, so it's kind of kind of rough still, but uh, it's for the study of Torah. Barukata Adonai Lahinu, Melech Haolam, Asher Kitshanu, Bamitzvotav, Bitsivanu, La Asok, Bedivrei Torah. And the translation is Blessed are you, Adonai our God, sovereign of all, who hallows us with mitzvot, commanding us to engage with words of Torah. Okay, so first I, I'm going to tell you guys about the resources that I'm using for information and everything. The primary source that I'm going to be using for a lot of my historical information and everything like that is the Torah Class podcast. The, this podcast is essentially, it runs the same as we're going to do through this, and he essentially just moves through not just the Torah, but a, a good chunk of the Bible so far over the past decade or so just one or two chapters at a time so he, he really goes into detail on it and i have instructions for that on that resources document how to find this podcast and where to get it and everything and then the second main resource i'm going to be using is it's called the kumash and it this all this copy only includes the torah but it's essentially the size of any normal Bible that we have because of the, the commentary that goes into it. Essentially, there's one or two or just a few verses on the top, and then everything else is super in-depth commentary on it, and it's really useful. It is it's a good resource. That is the Kumash. It, it kind of compiles pretty much the, the big details from just about every every significant commentary from all the all of the most respected sages and rabbis throughout history it, this is information that's been passed down for thousands of years and then the last resource that i just wanted to mention is i'm going to be using translations of the bible that it'll they will put back in the the their the original words uh, and names of places and people and things um, back into it that are really significant. And it's kind of an injustice that they've been translated into what we think is close to an English equivalent because a lot of Hebrew and even a lot of Greek words for the New Testament don't really have a good English equivalent. Um, and so the versions I'm going to be using are the it's called the tree of life version this is a good one and then i will also be using the it's, it's called the complete jewish bible and both of them do a good job at putting putting the the hebrew and the meaning back where it belongs in a lot of cases <clears throat> oh and they they also restore the original ordering of the books too which is, i think is important because the ordering of the Old Testament that we have now isn't actually the original ordering of the Old Testament. The, the Old Testament now, I think they when they when they 
uh, I can't remember exactly when they when they changed the order. I think it was a few centuries after Jesus lived, but I could be wrong on that. But essentially, it, it looks like they tried to make it more chronological. But the original ordering of the Old Testament is the Torah, which is the first five books. Those are the same. And then we have the prophets next. Those got switched around a little, but uh, the prophets was the second section. And then the third section of the Old Testament was just called the writings. And it was essentially what didn't fit into the first two sections. And so first, before we get into actually talking about the scripture itself, I want to give a couple disclaimer preparatory type things. And the first one is that my words are not at all authoritative and neither are any other man, woman, or child that talks about scripture. Not, not me, not Ashley, not anybody here, no, not any pastor or leader or anything. Nobody, nobody speaks with complete authority. We essentially in this study are going to be doing our best using the resources that we have and trying to arrive at truth, but we're going to be wrong a lot on the way uh, because about about any any one issue in scripture i've already i've already found out i was wrong about it about 40 times in my life and i'll i'll probably find that out about another 40,000 times before i die and when i die i'm still not going to have a complete understanding of that issue we we're just this this is going to be a long process but we're going to we're going to be doing our best on the way and hopefully we will learn something despite the fact that we are going to struggle a lot. And then this, the second thing I wanted to <clears throat> say to kind of prepare us all for this is that we have to leave, the, this might be the most important, is that we have to leave behind all of our doctrines and all of our predetermined beliefs. Everything that we think we know, we have to essentially leave at the door for the study. Because if, if we if we go into studying scripture with with ideas of what we think about any one thing, then it's going to cloud our understanding of it when it comes up. And I, I've had a lot of times so far where that where I found that same thing happen. It took me. There, there have been issues that I've read about in scripture where it's taken about the tenth time of me coming across it for me to finally realize that I'm subconsciously twisting it and kind of turning it into what I think or what I have always been told that it says. And so the most important thing is we go into this essentially as if we know nothing. And we are just going to, we're going to pick up what we do learn from scripture along the way, starting at the very beginning. Denominations don't matter. It doesn't matter if you're Catholic, Baptist, Jewish, whatever you, you identify as now it's important that we find a, we're going to find a common ground because it's the same scripture that each branch focuses on each branch reads so we're going to have a common ground with every denomination who's here and there there's a philosopher i really admire from i think the 17th century i want to say his name was Rene Descartes, and he essentially, he was the one who kind of kickstarted the whole mindset of systematic skepticism, because essentially what happened is he, he went 
for a long time in his life, assuming, I, I don't even think it was about religion. I think it was just about the world in general, science or something like that. But he essentially went his whole life believing a certain set of things were true because he was told they were true and he had always seen that they were. And then eventually when he kind of got up in old age, he found out that some of those very foundational things were false. And so he, he kind of started on a journey where he was going to see what he actually does know. And so what he did was uh, what we're going to try to do here now. And he, he essentially said to himself, I know nothing. I, anything I think I do know, I don't know nothing. Nothing exists. There's, there's nothing out there. And he essentially tried to, tried to work through it and piece together what he can know from what he has around him. Uh, and I won't explain too much of his process of that, but I, that, that attitude that he brought just to life in general is exactly what we need to bring when we study scripture. We have to, we have to act like we know nothing. We need to be just newborn babies when we start in Genesis. <clears throat> Lastly, for the, for the whole disclaimer type section, and we have to be prepared to confront some of these challenges when we meet them and we have to be prepared to ultimately take what we see in scripture over what we may have been taught what we may think we know already we have to forgo those doctrines in exchange for the truth that we find in scripture post uh, jesus days and we we are we're kind of living in our own culture and we don't we don't see firsthand what it looks like then um, also um if i can just add that with the being challenging that that means that questions are definitely going to come up and nobody we don't want anybody to feel like they are they don't know anything or if you have questions because we have questions and we don't even have answers to some of the questions we don't it's questions that will take a while to get answered um and it's important that you put those questions out there because maybe somebody else who, maybe somebody else does have a piece to that question or they might have some little bit of an answer, but it's okay that you ask questions and sometimes you might not even get an answer. It'll be a, we don't know, we'll have to just kind of go at it together and try to figure out the answer to it. Yes, exactly. We, we live in a culture of answers to everything and you you don't need to question, but when you do question, it's you you can find an easy answer. A lot of a lot of these questions, like Ashley said, they're not going to have answers right away, and we have to we have to essentially just be comfortable, at least for a while, to sit in that discomfort, to sit in our not knowing the answer to something, and we have to just we have to be patient. And now we can kind of get into the scripture overview. This, this is, this is all of scripture, all of, well, primarily the Old Testament, but the New Testament too, when it comes to wording and stuff, but the, the Old Testament in, in the Hebrew is typically referred to as the Tanakh, and that's taken from kind of a, like an acronym of the original ordering of the Old Testament, because uh, the, the original ordering was the Torah, 
which is the first five books, the prophets, which in the Hebrew is called the Nevi'im, and the writings, lastly, which are called in the Hebrew Ketuvim. And so when you take the first letter from each of those words, it's T and K. And so or in, in Hebrew, it's different, but it's those sounds in Hebrew. Um, and so when you when you kind of put some vowels in there, you get the Tanakh. And so uh, Tanakh refers to the Old Testament as a whole. And then secondly, when the Bible references the law, 99.9%, if not all of the time, the actual wording or what it's referencing is Torah. And it's, it's actually very unfortunate that in our translations, Torah has been replaced with law most of the time. This happened when the scriptures were first translated into Greek. Essentially, the reason that they translated Torah into law instead of just keeping Torah is that the early, the early Gentile church wanted to distance itself from the Jewishness that inherently exists in, in, the, in the scriptures. Um, and so anytime you see any, any mention of the law, if you don't have one of these Hebrew roots translations that already does it, in your head, just kind of substitute back in Torah instead of law. And it, it actually doesn't even really mean law in the most basic sense. It, it essentially means teaching or instruction. So it's not, it's not just law. It's kind of, it's another one of those words that doesn't quite have a good English equivalent. And then that, that, yeah, that's just one example of many Hebrew concepts that translate poorly. Because when you say, when you say that Torah is the same thing as law or some other examples are when you say that tzitzit are equivalent to the words hem of a garment or tassel, or when you say that shalom is the same thing as peace. The example that I thought of recently is that it's like saying sushi is the same as fish sticks. You, it, it seems noble at first to kind of take a word that a lot of people don't know and put it in a way that, that they understand, but it's, it's an injustice to the word itself because it kind of destroys the meaning of the word. Whereas if you left it, people and people don't know what a seed seed is, it's easy enough now for them to just look, look it up. Still on kind of on the topic of wording, uh, throughout the study, I and I think Ashley too are going to try to use the original Hebrew names of different people and places and other things like other, other significant things like that. The name thing, it's pretty new for me. And so I'm, I'm going to try to refer to Jesus as Yeshua, his Hebrew name. We decided we would be switching to Yeshua instead. And I will probably refer to God as Adonai or Hashem. And maybe maybe sparingly his name. But that, that's a whole issue that we will talk about later on when the whole concept of the name comes up. But from what I have heard... I believe the, the pronunciation of God's name is Yehovah, but I, I'm going to use it sparingly because it's his, it's the, his name that we should revere. I used to not say it, but I read, when I read through Exodus, the, the, the traditional way of it is you don't say his name and you substitute Adonai or Hashem in place of it. Hashem actually literally just means the name in Hebrew. Um, and the idea is that you want to give reverence to it, which I might eventually realize that I'm wrong and go back 
to saying Adonai and Hashem and not say his name. But I, when I read through Genesis, what I or Exodus, I mean, the part that he reveals his name, he says, this is the name I want you to remember me by. And which right now I, I take that to mean he wants to be known as his name, not necessarily just throw it around willy nilly, but I believe he wants us to know his, his real name. But again, still having reverence for it because it's it's a very important issue, uh, the concept of God's name. <clears throat> and with with Jesus's Hebrew name, I'll be call I will be using Yeshua. But actually, it's kind of interesting. His his real Hebrew name, if we translated it uh, the way that we translate other ones, it would actually translate to Joshua, um, which I don't quite yet know all the implications of his name being Joshua, but his name in the Hebrew is Yahashua, and the reason that it eventually just got reduced down to Shua is because in, when, you're, when you're speaking in Hebrew, some syllables can, can kind of be missed to outside ears, and so when, when a Hebrew says uh, Yeshua's name really fast, it just sounds like Yeshua because it's it's pronounced Yeshua. The, the middle, the middle ha is kind of really, really missable in there when you say it really fast like that. So that's that's just kind of a because if we're going to be studying it, we have to we need to justify studying. Which I I know it's scripture, but there there's a big issue today where um, kind of the the modern the modern viewpoint that's been developing the past nineteen hundred years or so is not not necessarily all all churches denominations people but the general modern viewpoint is that the old testament is specifically the torah is it's outdated or it's abolished or just irrelevant to us either today as a whole with the onset of yeshua or just to us as gentiles but the two the two the new testament and the old testament are inseparable and the the new testament really says nothing on its own because it, it's in the context of the the old testament and the hebrew culture that it was written and it was written to and i actually have a demonstration for this that i this is the only good reason that i have this now but um i was on about a year ago i think i was on facebook and i got an advertisement for a free bible I just had to put in shipping info and they would send it to me. So I put in my shipping info and they sent me my free Bible. And this is what they sent me. Yeah, here, you can show it. It's the New Testament because that I suppose is the only, the only aspect of the Bible that exists. Um, and that, that I have a physical demonstration now of the, the, idea today that it's the on, only the new testament that's relevant or worth studying or that applies and so that that was that's the only use i'm ever going to get out of having ordered that and then another another bit of information to kind of sit with is that more than half of the new testament is actually just either direct quotation or just restatements of things that were said in the old testament and so it's it's not entirely 
new stuff. It's it's it is it's a continuation of and and expounding on the the Old Testament that already existed then. I I have some scriptures all from the New Testament about the the validity of the Torah and the the about the Torah still being in place, which one I today I'm I won't talk about necessarily um what it means that the torah is still in place and still valid um that's something that we're going to see over the next long period of time as we study torah we're going to see we're going to see how what it means for us at the torah but essentially right now i just want to run through these scriptures from all from the new testament mostly jesus's words that express this same idea and most of these are not ones that are often uh, approached in most circuits. So some of, some of this might be new information, but I'll, I'll have Ashley read them and then I'll kind of talk about any additional information about that passage. The first one is from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. It's Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And this is in the middle of his his Sermon on the Mount too. So the Sermon on the Mount is um, it's a lot of times seen as Jesus like the, the pinnacle of Jesus' ministry, the the most important sermon he ever gave, the most meaningful sermon he ever gave. And this this kind of troubling bit of information to us today is right smack in the middle. Do not think that I came to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I did not come to abolish but to fulfill. Amen, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or seraph shall ever pass away from the Torah until all things come to pass. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, this one shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Torah scholars, you shall never enter the kingdom of heaven. And yeah, as we said, this is right in the middle of his Sermon on the Mount. And uh, an additional piece of information for that passage specifically, when he says, I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill the, the Greek word um, in the original manuscripts that's used or that's translated as fulfill is play rue. And play rue essentially has the sense of fill up. So if you were getting a glass of milk or filling up your gas tank, you would say, you would say play rue my glass, play rue my gas tank. And so essentially, I, I'm not gonna say this is absolutely what Yeshua is saying because I I don't know. I um I don't ever wanna give off the impression that I'm absolutely certain about anything but if he's filling up the torah then what i what i think the message there is that he's filling up the torah with me filling up the torah and then the next passage we have is luke 16 16 to 17 okay no pressure Torah and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is being proclaimed, and everyone tries forcing his way in. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for a single 
seraphs of the Torah to fail. Another thing like the unintentionally ordered is this passage because when I when I when I discover something new about something in the Bible or when I'm kind of confronted with something challenging or just to strengthen uh, my own understanding of a certain thing, I like to look up evidence for the opposite. And so there have been a few times where in my realizing that is very nefarious and out of context cherry picking because you look at the very next verse and Yeshua says it would be easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for a single seraph of the Torah to fail. And so when when we look at the context of the entire thing, there's 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 a different meaning or meaning that we're missing from what we from what we already know. And the next passage is going to be James 1, 22 to 25. It's actually fun fact about the book of James. It is actually supposed to be the book of Jacob uh, because the name in the Greek is not Demetrios, which which is always translated James, is actually Iacobos. And the thought is that when when King James hundreds of years ago commissioned the first widespread English Bible, it's thought that they the scholars who did it made that change from Jacob to James to honor King James. James but be doers of the world and not hearers only, deluding yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he looks at himself and goes away, he immediately forgets what sort of a person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect Torah, the Torah that gives freedom and continues in it, not becoming a hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he shall be blessed in what he does. So this, this passage has always been kind of a seeming oxymoron on the surface to me, where it seems like it's contradicting itself in the statement, the, the Torah that gives freedom, or as it's translated, sometimes the law that gives freedom, because it seems, seems odd. How could, how could law, how could Torah give freedom? And that's, that's one thing that we'll find along the way, but it is, it seems like an oxymoron, seems contradictory on the surface, but it, it is the Torah that gives freedom to us. Um, and then the next passage is going to be 2 Timothy 3, 14 to 17. You, however, continue in what you have learned and what you have become convinced of, for you know from whom you have learned, and that from your childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to make you wise, leading to salvation through trusting in Messiah Yeshua. All scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for restoration, and for training in righteousness, so that the person belonging to God may be capable, fully equipped for every good deed. One, one thing about this and about the whole New Testament in general, any time that the New Testament refers to scripture or the word, it's only referring, I, I'm not saying that the New Testament isn't scripture now, but what I'm saying is uh, the writers at the time, the only scripture that they used, the only scripture they had, and the only scripture they were referring to was the Old Testament, and primarily uh, the Torah, because that was the main 
focus of them at that time. <clears throat> and because the, the New Testament didn't, didn't exist in what was close to its present form, I think until about a hundred years after Yeshua lived and died. I'm pretty sure, but I I would check myself on that. And so that that's important to to know going into this too, is that anytime Anytime the entire Bible refers to the scriptures, it's referring to the Old Testament. And then the next passage is Matthew 22, 37 to 40. And he said to him, you shall love Adonai your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The entire Torah and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This is this is the the part in Jesus' life where he's asked what the greatest commandments are. And Yeshua says, uh, love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And these two statements are just are taken from the Torah itself. The love your God with all your heart, mind, or uh, yeah, heart, soul, and strength is taken from Deuteronomy uh, six five. Six, six, I want to say that passage that he cited is called the Shema, usually. And the Shema is, is one of the pinnacles of both the Jewish and Christian faith. Love God with all your heart. Uh, and, love, and love your neighbor as yourself is taken from Leviticus 19:18. And then Yeshua says, after stating those two, that all the other commandments hang off of it. So the, the, these are the two greatest, two most encapsulating commandments of the whole Torah, and everything else that's commanded falls under one of those two categories. And so, how how do you love God uh, with all your heart, soul, and strength? And how do you love your neighbor as yourself? You look at the other commandments that come under. And then the next one is right there with it. It's Matthew 23, 1 to 7. Then Yeshua spoke to the crowds and to his, to his disciples, saying, The Torah scholars and Pharisees sit on the seat of Moses. So whatever they tell you, do and observe, but don't do what they do. For what they say, they do not do. They tie up heavy loads hard to carry, and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves aren't willing to lift a finger to move them. All their works they do, do to be noticed by men. They make their tefillin wide and their tzitziot long. They love the place of honor at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called rabbi by men. Okay, and in this passage, this one kind of caught me by surprise, even though I, even after I'd already been learning these things, because what, what we're typically taught is that uh, Yeshua was always in contradiction to the Pharisees, uh, anything Anything a Pharisee says or does, you have to do the opposite. The Pharisee, Pharisees are bad. They're teaching false things. They're just, they're, they're awful people. You don't want to be any, you don't want any part with them. But what he said, what he, what he literally said there was do, do what the Pharisees say, but just don't do what they do because they're hypocrites and they, they know the law well. They're experts in the law. They, they could probably cite the entire Torah back to front but they don't follow it themselves. So they, they teach other people to follow it, but they don't follow it themselves. And that was his issue with the Pharisees, not that they were teaching the Torah. 
And then the last one I have right now is John 5, 46 to 47. We might go a bit <clears throat> long today, but uh, there's a lot to cover with this first one. So. For if you were believing Moses, you would believe me, because he wrote about me. But since you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Another thing that I forgot to mention is when when Yeshua or the Old Testament, New Testament, any most of the parts of the Bible, when they refer to Moses or the law of Moses, what they're referring to is the Torah, because Moses Moses was the was the I I don't I don't know that he wrote the entire thing from his own hand, but he he gave the large majority of the Torah, with the exception, I think, of the last portion that talk about his death. And so anytime you see, like in this passage, it says, if you trusted Moses, you would trust me. It's it's referring to, to Moses and the Torah that he gave to the people. And then that that's all of the scripture that we will read for that, for, for the under the category of kind of justifying why, why be here at all, why study the Torah at all? Because typically it's, seen as irrelevant and just books of uh, genealogies and weird rituals that don't matter. But <clears throat> what we need to understand is that the Bible was written also Gentiles uh, later on uh, by Hebrews for Hebrews and within and surrounding a Hebrew culture. And so we, we can't just read the words and try to understand it what, what we know within our culture, what we think we know now, we have to understand it on its, we have to understand scripture on its own terms. And then another thing is that the Old Testament, the term, the term Old Testament is a man-made thing. Um, and it's, you'll never see it called the Old Testament in the scriptures. And these, the two divisions of Old and New Testament kind of give us the wrong idea about it. They're a better way to refer to them would be the early and later. And that it's because they're they're two parts of the same progressive story. It would it would be as it would be as weird as putting the Old Testament, with the exception of Malachi, I believe the latest written of the Old Testament books, putting all the ones that come before Malachi as the Old Testament and Malachi as the New Testament. It's it's part of the same story. They they all it all fits together and they all they all allow you to understand everything within it. That is another thing that I want to say. Um, I, I do have one more kind of longer piece of scripture that talks about <clears throat> us as Gentiles within uh, with the with God and with scripture and our relationship to God. And it's Romans 11, 13 to 24. However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this, since I myself am an, am an emissary, uh, Paul, am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that I may somehow provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will be life from the dead. Now, if the hala offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole loaf. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and have become equal sharers in the rich root of the olive tree, then don't boast as if you were better than the branches. 
However, if you do boast, remember that you are not supporting the root, the root is supporting you. So you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True, but so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he certainly won't spare you. So take a good look at God's kindness and his severity. On the one hand, severity, severity toward those who fell off. But on the other hand, God's kindness towards you, provided you maintain yourself in that kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Moreover, the others, if they do not persist in their lack of trust, will be, will be grafted in because God is able to graft them back in. For if you were cut out of what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? And another big issue that is kind of pervading our teaching today is that the Old Testament is only for Jews and applies only to Jews and the New Testament was for Gentiles and applies for Gentiles. But that that isn't true. I No matter how we want to put it, we, as Paul was explaining in Romans, we are grafted into their covenant with God. We are grafted into what already existed for the Jews. It's not two separate things. It's one, it's one unified, one unified system that we as Gentiles are brought into because of the grace of God. And it, and contrary again to what is taught in much of the church nowadays, the old Testament didn't exclude foreigners and Gentiles there, as, as we'll see in the Torah, there's, there's a lot of provisions made to let the foreigner uh, or the Gentile join Israel. Foreigners have always been allowed to be a part of God's people, provided they, they, they obey and put themselves under the same. And good example of this is uh, if you look at Jesus's genealogy, Yeshua's genealogy, and at the start of Matthew, you will see, I think, four women mentioned <clears throat> along the genealogy you'll see uh tamar rahab ruth and bathsheba three of those women were gentile converts to within israel they they were gentiles and they they converted and put themselves under the covenant with israel and they ended up being in jesus genealogy and i the the one that we're not sure about is Bathsheba, and she she may have still been a Gentile that was grafted into Israel, and all four of these women went on to become uh, ancestors of Yeshua. Um, and so that that's another kind of important thing that Yeshua didn't he didn't create an entirely new gospel. He he simply fulfilled, or as we we saw the word for that, we he. Uh, play rude and carried out the old. We tend to think of Yeshua as coming and doing a creating a completely new and novel system, but he he really did not. He was he was a continuation and a filling of the old one. And Yeshua was also the perfect upholder and proponent of Torah. He he followed every law. He taught every law. He encouraged every law. And what what is very very uncomfortable 
but what we have to we have to realize is that if Yeshua truly did try to abolish or nullify the Torah in any way, then he cannot be the Messiah that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And so it's it's in our best interest to find any way to make what Jesus is saying sounds terrible to put that on trial though, in order to come to a true understanding of what Yeshua was saying with some of his words. <clears throat> and then we're about done, but I'll I'll just run over some kind of general overview things about Genesis specifically now. Um, the Hebrew word for Genesis is Bereshit, and Bereshit, uh, in the most basic sense, translates to beginning. And Old Testament Old Testament book names are often taken from either the author or the central character or just a prominent word at the beginning of the book. And so Genesis starts out within the beginning, so it's called Bereshit beginning. Um, and you'll see the same thing with a lot of the other books in the Torah in the Old Testament. And then the last main thing that I want to talk about today is what Genesis is really the beginning of. There's, it's, it's kind of a major issue nowadays to, to discuss uh, how God created the world. It's, it's a, it's a big reason people can apostatize, is that the word? Go back on their faith is because of what what they see as science can't live with scripture. I, I'll talk a little bit next time about some of the theories. I'm not going to talk a ton about the theories, but I think the important thing to know from the creation story is that God isn't all that concerned with explaining how he did it. That's, it's another one of those instances where we have to just kind of be comfortable in our discomfort. We have to be okay sitting here and not having an answer to why or how God created the universe because he's not all that concerned with explaining how. The, the creation story takes up two, maybe three of the chapters in the entire Bible, two, maybe three out of the 50 chapters in Genesis alone. Um, and it's because God, he just isn't all that concerned with explaining how because it's not important. It, how we came to exist isn't the most important aspect of Genesis and the Torah. And I would also say that with Genesis being called the beginning, kind of along those same lines, Genesis isn't about the beginning of everything. The, he, God devotes two, maybe three chapters to tell about the creation process of the world. Because Genesis, for the most part, is considered the, the beginning of Israel as we're going to see throughout Genesis. It, it's not concerned with the, the beginning of the whole world. It's concerned with uh, the development, the creation, and the, the growth of Israel as a nation. And then that's, that's all I'll talk about for today. And then next time, next time we'll be getting into Genesis 1, and we'll talk about Genesis 1. Does anybody else have anything to add or any questions or anything like that? Well, I think we're okay. I just turned off.